Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Amazon Warehouse in upstate New York could become the company's second workplace in the country to unionize. Supporters held a final rally on Monday this week before the start of voting on Wednesday. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports. Union strong all day long. Union strong all day long. Protesters marched outside Amazon's million-square-foot facility in Skodak, tucked into the hills along the Hudson River. About 10 miles from Albany, the Fulfillment Center employs a diverse workforce of more than 800 people. It's here where workers will vote on whether to join the fledgling Amazon labor union. We are the union! We are the union! The ALU formed after employees at a Staten Island warehouse voted to unionize in the spring, a vote Amazon still objects to. A union push at another facility there this year failed. Skodak organizer and Amazon employee Heather Goodall says workers upstate are inspired. So to see that workers have this power even over a billion dollar bully is incredible. Goodall claims Amazon has retaliated during the union drive. In one example, she says she was disciplined after taking photos of warehouse conditions before submitting a complaint to the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration in July. They ended up writing me up for their phone policy. Amazon said it couldn't comment on a personnel issue. Safety is a primary concern among workers. A fire shut things down for a day last week. The cause remains under investigation. Employee Sam Malik, who is on workers' compensation leave after a head injury, says his complaints are going unheard. They, all they tell you is, oh, we're working on it, we're working on it, we're working on it. Well, okay, it's been a month and a half. Why isn't that fire extinguisher replaced? All right, you, I told you, you know, three weeks ago about hard hats, and I just got injured, and there's still no hard hats here. Oh, Amazon acknowledged a national uptick in injuries at a time when hundreds of thousands were being hired and trained to keep up with demand due to the pandemic. The retailer declined an interview to address specifics, but in a broad statement said it has made hundreds of changes based on employee feedback. Asked about the missing hard hats and fire extinguishers, the company said those allegations were not true. Meantime, organizer Kimberly Lane says Skodak workers are being discouraged from voting yes in meetings with consultants hired by Amazon. And they fill people's heads with fear and intimidation and psychological warfare, basically. Amazon says the meetings are to educate workers about the process of joining a union. The drive in Skodak comes as workers across the region show a renewed interest in unions. Mark Emanation, executive director of the Capital District Area Labor Federation, has been helping people organize in upstate New York for decades. We get calls every week now at my office saying, we're so-and-so, we have this little thing here, we'd like to be in a union. I match them up to a union. There's a meeting, they sit down, they start to organize. Five years ago, if you would ask me that, I couldn't say that we were getting a call once a week. We would get a call maybe once a year. If a new Amazon labor union local is formed in Skodak, National ALU President Chris Small says warehouses across the country will follow. After this building, there will be more. 
Votes will be tallied on October 18th by the National Labor Relations Board. If successful, the ALU will need to fight for a contract next. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. Democratic U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has been traveling across New York to highlight funding for the Low-Income Home Energy Assistance Program that was included in the recently passed continuing resolution. She came to Plattsburgh this week to talk about the funding, and the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley was there. The continuing resolution passed in September funds the federal government and various programs until the end of December. It includes $1 billion in supplemental funding for LIHEAP. About $60 million will be allocated to New York. In Plattsburgh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand said it was critical to boost the funding as cold weather approaches. We have heard that heating bills will go up in the North Country by as much as 39%. It has to do with the fact that OPEC just decided that they are going to reduce the number of barrels they're producing every day intentionally to raise our heating and oil costs. Uh, So we want to make sure that the federal government responds accordingly. Um, I have been working on this issue for a while, and I wrote a letter with a number of senators asking that we could increase the number of, or the amount of money that we have for LIHEAP. We got $1 billion extra to fund LIHEAP this winter. Uh, $60 million of that will come to New York State. Gillibrand noted that eligible households can begin applying for assistance on November 1st. That is relief for families who really are making these tough choices about heating your home, putting food on the table, buying your medications, and those are decisions that no family should have to make. This LIHEAP money could help families defray costs by as much as 40% of their heating bill. I'm optimistic that with the help of these local elected leaders, that people who need this kind of assistance will apply for it and get some of the relief that they need. Gillibrand noted that regional allocations have yet to be determined. I think it'll be based on who applies for more money. Clinton County Social Services Deputy Commissioner Rich Holcomb said thousands of people are in critical need of LIHEAP assistance. I'd just like to kind of indicate the importance of the increase in HEAP funding. Uh, Last year at the Department of Social Services, we helped over 7,000 families with their heating uh, utility needs, and we had 4,200 people that needed emergency assistance. Uh, In addition to that, uh, we saw $9.6 million spent in the North Country. So the additional funding truly is going to be beneficial to the folks, and nobody should have to choose between food, medicine, and heat. Households can apply at mybenefits.ny.gov or in person at local LIHEAP district offices. In Clinton County, that is the Department of Social Services. According to the Office of Democratic Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, chair of the Appropriations Committee, more than 6 million low-income households nationally rely on LIHEAP to help defray energy costs. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. 
Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. Alan? New York State Attorney General Tish James has asked the state Supreme Court to freeze the Trump Organization's New York assets and install an independent monitor in her civil suit targeting the former president as real estate businesses. Since we filed this sweeping lawsuit last month, quote, Donald Trump and the Trump Organization have continued those same fraudulent practices and are taking measures to evade responsibility, she said in a statement. Today we are seeking an immediate stop to these actions because Mr. Trump should not get to play by different rules. This is more about his organization and the way they value their assets. Could this be the thing that brings them down? I don't know. It's possible. Look, this is not good news for the Trump people. If courts come along, if legislatures come along, if people say this is just a step too far, we can't do this, it undermines the American democracy. It undermines what we are all about. And so this is a crucial test. It does appear that there are limits to what courts, even Trump-appointed courts and others, will allow. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartalk. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. New York's crime rate is once again an issue in the governor's race after two teenagers were shot outside the home of Republican candidate Lee Zeldin last weekend. More from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Zeldin, a Long Island congressman, was back on the campaign trail after two 17-year-olds were injured in a drive-by shooting in the front yard of his home. Zeldin's twin 16-year-old daughters were there by themselves, and they immediately called the police and their parents. They were shaken up by the incident but unharmed. The two gunshot victims are in the hospital. Police believe that Zeldin and his family were not the targets of the crime. Zeldin spoke about the incident Monday while marching with his daughters at the Columbus Day Parade in New York City. They were home alone. They were experiencing something that couldn't possibly be any more traumatic for two 16-year-old girls, but they handled themselves swiftly and smartly. It's the second violent encounter involving Zeldin since he launched his bid for governor. On July 21st, as Zeldin was giving a speech in a Rochester suburb, a man approached him with a plastic-pointed defense-style keychain and grabbed his arm. The alleged attacker, David Jacobonis, was wrestled to the ground by campaign aides. Jacobonis' lawyer later said his client is a war veteran who struggles with mental health and addiction issues. The Republican candidate says the incidents illustrate his belief that crime in New York is out of control and that the public is concerned about it. He's made the issue a priority in the campaign. If you were to talk to people about what they care about right now, they are talking about safety on our streets. They're talking about safety on our subways. Zeldin wants to roll back laws approved by Democrats in the governor's office and the state legislature, including the 2019 bail reform laws. They ended many forms of cash bail. He also wants to amend the raise the age law that ended the practice of treating 16- and 17-year-olds as adults in the criminal justice system. He says the current law is being abused. Hello, everyone. This caps off Governor Kathy Hochul, who's the Democratic candidate in the race, also marched in the Columbus Day Parade, though she and Zeldin did not meet. 
Hochul says she's been briefed on the shooting outside her opponent's home. She says she's offered to send state police investigators to help catch the perpetrators. I'm so pleased that no one was injured, that the family's safe. We sent our message right away if they want any assistance from state police in the investigation. Hochul supports the state's recent criminal justice reforms, though she did back recent changes to make more crimes bail eligible and to give judges more power to hold defendants before their trials. The governor views the shooting outside the Zeldin home as another reason to double down on controlling the flow of illegal guns. It's a reminder we all have to work together to get guns off the streets, and so I will continue as I've been on this journey as governor to do everything we can to ensure that our streets are safe. That is one of my highest priorities. Zeldin says the incident has not changed his opposition to the state's gun control laws, including a new law that regulates the carrying of concealed weapons. Portions of that law were recently struck down by a federal judge. The ruling's been appealed by the state attorney general. Zeldin says there's a difference between career criminals and other New Yorkers who simply want to exercise their Second Amendment rights. I don't today, and I never will have any problem with a law-abiding citizen who wants to safely and securely carry a firearm solely for self-defense. Zeldin and Hochul have not spoken directly about Sunday's incident. Zeldin says at the time of the July attack, he asked Hochul for a state police security detail, but his request was denied. Hochul says it's up to the federal government to provide protection because Zeldin is a congressman. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. The nation's largest higher education union kicked off a campaign this week calling for more funding for the State University of New York system, with several campuses, including three in New York's capital region, facing projected multi-million dollar deficits. The Legislative Gazette's Ashley Hupful reports. Capital Region local officials joined United University Professions President Fred Cole at the University at Albany Friday to announce the new push, citing chronic underfunding of the system. Cowell said it was the first of several events planned around the state. The union will also be traveling to Plattsburgh, Buffalo, Syracuse, and the Hudson Valley. Just the spread of those stops and the diversity of those campuses points out how important SUNY is as an institution to the state of New York and its future. Last year, we had some significant legislative wins thanks to members in the legislature like Pat Fahey, who is here with us today. But last year was only a starting point. University at Albany has a projected budget deficit of $15 million for 22-23. Cobleskill College, my home campus, has a $4 million deficit. And Empire State College has a projected $6.9 million deficit. Cole, also a WAMC commentator, says chronic underfunding of the SUNY system has forced schools to raise tuitions and fees to address budget shortfalls. According to the SUNY website, in-state tuition for the last academic year was about $7,000. Out-of-state tuition is about $17,000. That does not include other expenses, like housing and other mandatory fees. We cannot fix this problem by limiting class options, overcrowding classrooms, or raising tuition and fees. Those days must end. This is a public university system, not a private system, with some funding from the public sector. It's got to be public once again. SUNY's Board of Trustees 2023 executive budget recommends $12.5 billion for SUNY in next year's state budget, an overall increase of $656 million. 
Fahey credits investments in SUNY Poly, which has campuses in Albany and Utica, for delivering highly skilled workers and helping lead to semiconductor maker Micron's announcement last week that it will invest $100 billion over 20 years to build a chip factory in Clay, north of Syracuse. Those investments have a ripple effect, and we wouldn't get them if it, were, if it weren't for the recognition that we have talent here. And we're all hearing about labor shortages, especially this year, which have become quite extreme, especially in a number of industries. But we are still known for growing talent, for having talent, and it is because of these investments. Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan touted UAlbany's local economic boost. The Democrat says SUNY accounts for nearly 10,000 jobs and supports more than 21,000 indirect jobs. SUNY's impact on the capital region economy was $3.4 billion in 2018, according to an economic impact study by the Rockefeller Institute of Government. She added she might not be mayor today if not for public universities. I lived in Ohio when I was in high school, and it was a public university that was attainable for me as someone who had to work to pay my own tuition. That was something that was achievable for me. If that public university system had not been there, I might not be standing here today. Student Association Vice President Jalen Miller says with additional funding, UAlbany would be able to better provide critical services like mental health care. As students try to balance our course loads, our family life, work, and the financial burdens of being a student, they should not have to worry about having more healthcare professionals here to assist them, and we need that. So we need more resources to staff our SUNY campuses in all departments. Students should not have to worry about long wait lines to speak to financial aid offices about tuition when we're already worried about the cost for higher education in the first place. A SUNY spokesperson did not comment directly on UUP's funding push, but said in a statement to WAMC that the most recently enacted state budget included the most significant investment in higher education in a generation, which supports the governor's vision to secure SUNY's place as a global leader in higher education. A spokesperson for Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul did not respond to a request for comment. Reporting from Albany, this is Ashley Helpful. <laughs> listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Crisis pregnancy centers offer support and counseling to pregnant women, but they're ideologically opposed to abortion and they outnumber abortion clinics in New York state. Abortion advocates say the centers pretend to be medical clinics and mislead patients. And as WSKG's Phoebe Taylor Rollo reports, Sometimes, abortion clinics and crisis pregnancy centers are so close to each other they can confuse pregnant patients. The two nondescript buildings share a parking lot in the town of Vestal, just outside of Binghamton. Women's Health Services has a mural of a yellow flower. That's the abortion clinic. It's been around since the 1980s. 
Across the parking lot is Women's Life Services. That's the pregnancy center. They're opposed to abortion and instead try to provide alternatives to the procedure. They have a butterfly on their sign. The similarity of the names, the signage, as well as how close they are to each other sometimes causes confusion. So much so that in 2019, the abortion clinic started collecting anonymous forms from patients who accidentally ended up at the wrong place. I mistakenly thought it was the location I was supposed to go to, so I went in saying I had an appointment at the woman at the desk. She told me she would bring me in and talk to me. Uh, the name was the same or almost the same as the clinic. So they That's Susan Seibold Simpson, the executive director of the abortion clinic, Southern Tier Women's Health Services. She's reading through some of the forms they've gotten from patients. Um, she told me there was a good chance my marriage would fail due to the abortion. She gave me a gift bag, which includes the pamphlets and then a little... Seibold Simpson says because the two buildings are so close to each other, GPS sometimes drops patients off in front of the pregnancy center, even if they're trying to go to the abortion clinic. We tell people we have a painting of a large yellow flower next to our door. They have a butterfly on their sign. So they, you know, people, I'll say, look for the yellow flower, and they're like, well, I see a butterfly. Nope, that's not us. She says it has gotten better lately. Now they text people if they're late to their appointment to make sure they didn't end up in the wrong building. Or if they call me, we just go stand out front and we wave because we can see them over there. So we just wave and say, come on over here because they are, they're within calling distance. Crisis pregnancy centers sometimes offer free pregnancy tests and ultrasounds. Supporters of the centers say they connect patients with resources, local social services, and material support like diapers or formula. But abortion advocates say the centers misrepresent themselves as medical clinics and provide misleading and inaccurate information to patients in the attempt to convince them to continue their pregnancies. Seibold Simpson says it would be fine if the centers only provided support for people who want to continue their pregnancies. But she says more often than not, patients looking for abortion care end up delayed and distressed. We've had patients call us saying they were so demoralized that they, they just went home. Peg Johnston co-owns the abortion clinic. She says the pregnancy centers are nothing new. Along with pro-life protesters, they've been following the abortion clinic since the 80s. They've been with us from the very beginning. When we were in the Binghamton Plaza, they were just up the street on Shenango. Then when we came to um, up by Dunkin' Donuts there, they had a place right across the street. And then when we came here, they are right over there, right across the parking lot. So I'm standing in front of Women's Health Services, which is the abortion clinic. And yeah, Women's Life Services, the pregnancy center, it's just across the parking lot. They're sort of on a diagonal from each other. It's a small parking lot. I'd say it's like 100 feet, maybe a little more. Gary Lieber is the executive director of Women's Life Services, the pregnancy center. He says they make it clear to people that the center is not a medical clinic. He admits some patients do end up there thinking it's the abortion clinic. But in an email, Lieber says there are no accidents with God. And he sees it as an opportunity for pregnant women to slow down, talk, and hear the facts about abortion, adoption, and parenting. Lieber says, like many other things, all three have risks. He says the center connects people with local resources and social services. They have a room with baby clothes and diapers. 
Lieber says they counsel women about all of their options and that their counselors don't pressure or judge. Uh, but uh, when it comes to abortion, uh, it's easy to just have that word translated in the public to not really mean that a child is losing its life. Earlier this year, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed legislation that directs the state commissioner of health to study the impact of crisis pregnancy centers. Alice Cartwright is a doctoral candidate in maternal and child health at the University of North Carolina. She co-authored a study that used Google ads to poll people who searched online for abortion care. The researchers asked people if they were pregnant and if they had gone to a crisis pregnancy center, or CPC. Then they checked back in with them four weeks later. We found that compared to people who had not visited a CPC, people who said that they visited a CPC, they were both more likely to still be trying to get an abortion and more likely to be planning to continue the pregnancy versus having had an abortion. So the study finds that people who had been to a pregnancy center were more likely to still be pregnant four weeks later. Cartwright says that could be for a number of reasons. Some patients weren't considering an abortion in the first place and went to the pregnancy centers for diapers or baby clothes or connection to housing services. The pregnancy centers could be scaring patients away from seeking abortion or delaying them so that it's harder for them to access an abortion. And it could just be harder to find an abortion clinic than a pregnancy center. Cartwright says ultimately people end or continue their pregnancies for all sorts of personal, individual reasons. She says that's one of the challenges when it comes to looking at the impact of pregnancy centers. But she says there's still a lot for states like New York to study. What types of services do they actually provide? Um, and who are the types of people who are visiting them? And then what are they actually seeking? from those places. Cartwright says that could also illuminate gaps in the public health and reproductive care system. In Binghamton, I'm Phoebe Taylor-Vuolo. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. As for program number 2241. Or just listen online at wamc.org. And you can schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.